Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. For sure, I think if I get to drive more and more and more, uh, for sure, you know, I'm going to feel more comfortable. I nearly told him to calm down in the end. I'm like, mate, you're making me stressed. I'm stressed enough as is. In 2014, Chaz Mostert and Paul Morris won Bathurst. The race finished at almost 6.30 and 5.2 million people were watching at the end of that race. So a quarter of the Australian population watched Chaz win that race. That's a pretty you know, compelling figure to, to drop on anybody. <laughs> From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. And welcome to Inside Supercars. Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, a wonderful weekend of racing at the Service Paradise track. Indeed, and how about some of that driving in the wet? Once again, these drivers showed how they are the top of the tree in this country with that performance. And the great thing is, yet again, we had two of the very young, and you'd say relatively inexperienced, certainly in these cars, both Richie Stanaway and Andre Heimgartner, again, Sean Brightley, a pair of New Zealanders. And contrast that to Alex Premer, who was extremely unhappy with the conditions out there, yet when it dried up on the Saturday, and then on the Sunday, he was electric. Yes, indeed. And in fact, in most people's view, he was the one that uh, got Scotty to a position where he could win on Sunday and put himself right back in contention. Wonderful thing, great racing. The, sh- the racing through the Pertec and Jarrah Cup was shared around. Four different winners, three different teams across the four races. Uh, and wonderful thing is it's tightened up with uh, Jamie Wincup doing an excellent job, uh, just uh, getting that uh, position uh, where he he got himself back in the points uh, at Bathurst and kept himself there on both Saturday and Sunday. Uh, fantastic. Um, and it's going to be a, a title fight right down to Newcastle. I mean, certainly it puts it all together for a great weekend's racing at uh, Pukukaui uh, in two weeks' time. Indeed, and that's where you're talking to us from today. Indeed, over in New Zealand. And uh, this weekend, of course, we have the Australian GTs, which brings up an interesting subject. That, of course, we had an earlier conversation with Tony Quinn pre the announcement of the alliance between... Uh, supercars and taking over the management of Australian GT and now we have the situation where CAMS has said, no, that's not going to happen. Mm. A very interesting situation. And something that, yeah, something yeah. that when we're speaking to Eugene Rocker later today, I, um, I certainly hope to uh, get some answer from, but uh, it's certainly a lot going on with CAMS because safety is a huge issue that I don't think has been brought to the fore yet in uh, most commentary, but that's certainly the focus of my conversation with him today. Yes, indeed, and and the uh, FIA annual inspection of tracks is certainly opening up that, uh, what could be well a can of worms, with uh, both uh, Queensland Raceway and Sandown have been responsible for far too many major accidents and the potential for some deaths. There have been some at Queensland Raceway, and fortunately quite some time ago at Sandown, but they're both tracks that have had annually far too many accidents happening. Just before um, we move on, Tony, I thought the Pertec Cup, the points for the Pertec Cup, the championship inside a championship, and even though there's really only two endurance racements in my mind out of the uh, four that are there, Steve Owen Chas Mostert win it on 660 points. Now, this is what interests me with it. 
Coulthard and Dalberto, who had an absolute shocker across the entire Gold Coast weekend, I think it's safe to say, 48 points back. Cameron Waters and Richie Stanaway, of course, won the uh, opening race at Sandown. They're 66 points back. And then 69 points back, Van Gisbergen and Campbell. 126 points back, Wing Cup and Dumbrell. And in sixth position, 156 points back, Lowndes and Richards. So whilst Lowndes and Richards, I think we would agree, had a, a horrible first two races, they still were consistent enough to finish in the top six and all three triple eight cars finishing fourth, fifth and sixth, all line of stern on the points board. Well, that brings an interesting point because in this year's Enduros, and I haven't looked up the stats and it's certainly worthwhile going to do it before we next speak, this is the first year I can remember where triple eight haven't won a race in that Enduro Cup. Now, they've won it three of the five times it's been held. So they've had, you know, dramatic success and, of course, they've got a lot of Bathurst wins couple of sand downs, but uh, for them not to have won a race, uh, very quick on Sunday. I mean, the top three positions after the shootout were held by Triple Eight cars, and yet they were out, uh, out thought, out strategized by uh, DJR Tim Penske. I think Mark Dutton has given a, a tip of the lid to uh, Ludo for his uh, great strategy, and they sort of went too conservative, but. All in all, it does end up uh, suggesting that it is going to be a cracker end of the year and probably the closest we've had for some time. I mean, last year, uh, Shane took out the title. Um, he was pretty dominant from uh, halfway through the season, particularly the back end of the season, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Jamie so. Wincup leading the championship, five, uh, 2,580 points. Fabian Coulthard, uh, Coulthard, perhaps an omen, 17 points back, uh, Tony. Then Scott McLaughlin, 27 points back. Mostert at 126 is starting to get out of reach, and I think even though it's less than 300 at 189, obviously, Shane Van Gisbergen, it would take a, a dramatic turn of events. Not that it can't happen. I remember Jamie Winkup winning the championship and sitting out the Pukekohe round. So it can happen that things can go awry at Pukki, but uh, it take a lot for Shane Van Gisbergen in fifth position to be able to get there, but it's still less than 300 points, so mathematically he's still in the hunt. And the great thing for the uh, uh, series and also the interest of the uh, the fans is the fact that it was PRA won the Enduro Cup and in Ford, first time they've won the Enduro Cup, so the dominance of Triple Eight and Holden has sort of ended. Mm. So this week's show is going to be fascinating. As uh, mentioned, Craig is going to be talking to Eugene Arocca, um, the other treat we have is a newcomer, not only to the series, but a newcomer to this country. Mitch Robinson joined PRA at Sandown. He is the PR manager for PRA, working under Peter Travaskas, who still controls most of the things in the, that area for PRA. But Mitch uh, will bring an insight that just new set of eyes and ears to the series, and we're looking forward to hearing what he thinks of it all. It's starting right before Sandown, so... He's seen the Pertec Cup in its entirety from right inside one of the teams that was a contender right throughout. He is indeed. I think we should uh, uh, mention that Fogues is reporting at Speed Cafe that Malaysia is actually the favourite to be the first Asian race announced ahead of the Singapore Grand Prix, and that would be at the Sepang Circuit. Yes, indeed. And, of course, that, that whole thing is certainly opening up. I mean... Warburton's, as we uh, we know, that Warburton's leaving the series at the end of the year, as is Matt Braid and several others within Simon Fordham is going to be leaving the Supercar TV. 
uh, after many years, uh, 10 or 11 years of uh, very good service there. Uh, of course, he uh, was trained in the job by uh, Murray Lomax, who left many years ago. But um, it's uh, interesting times, and certainly the announcement of um, Malaysia and potentially uh, Singapore and another race in the Asian area, it would be fantastic for the series to add those. Um, it seems as though the FIA will listen far more to Formula One and Liberty Media than possibly they ever did in the past, where Eccleston probably wanted to keep supercars at arm's length. Liberty are saying, no, come on in, bring your series with us, for you're a great support act, mm. which is fantastic news. Yeah, indeed, and uh, James Warburton is still confident, he said, of getting a Asian race announced before he leaves on the... 22nd of December. Now, Tony, as you know, we spoke to James Warburton in August and it was interesting when he made this comment on Friday. Uh, 2017 was always going to be my last year, uh, you know, with our employers and employers uh, within um, particularly Archer Capital, the 65% shareholder. And uh, probably the only thing that's, uh, you know, that's changed in terms of the transition was the fact that the opportunity uh, to lead APN Outdoor came around as quickly as it did, which has obviously pushed, you know, pushed that a little bit, a uh, little bit sooner than otherwise would have happened. Now, when I heard that, Tony, it seemed to contradict yes. the comment he had made on our show in only August, which is less than two months ago. Here's what he had to Indeed. say then. Uh, you know, as you've heard me say at many of the gala dinners, you know, you wouldn't actually want to do any sporting role without the support of the competitor base. And, in this case, the team owners that we spend a lot of time with and our business partners. So as long as I've got their support, you know, we'll keep on running around. And, um, you know, I think, as I said before, you know, the, the, the proof's in the pudding. So um, uh, we'll just keep going. And mm. if someone ever asks you to stop, that's no problem either. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does give a different twist to it. But, you know, things change and there are... Um, little uh, feet going underneath the water in a lot of ways. Well, after the break, we'll be back with Eugene Oroca to talk us about uh, the latest developments down Cam's Way. So straight after the break with Eugene Oroca and Craig Ravel. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Facebook page. And to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think, is a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian title since we've been back, and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back. Tony Whitlock in New Zealand getting ready for Australian GTs this weekend, Porky Curry the following weekend, and the final of Australian GTs after that. But coming up straight away now is Craig Ravel with Eugene Arocca, the CEO of CAMS, Confederation of Australian Motorsport. One of the main reasons why I wanted to speak with you today, Eugene, is uh, a concern I've had certainly since Sandown, um, but really even before then is the fact that uh, Sandown and Queensland Raceway in particular seem to be tracks, and I know Queensland Raceway is only for, what, two weeks a year under the CAMS auspices, but they both seem like tracks that are now getting 
to be extremely dangerous. And uh, with Sandown's example, I don't think in the last four years we haven't seen a car go into the Dandenong, Dandenong Road tyre wall. Um, without fail, it seems to happen. What is CAMS looking at in the way of track safety? And I know there is FIA inspections that are, are required every year, but have we now got to a point where these tracks are in jeopardy of not getting accreditation? Craig, um you know, it's really hard to answer that without recognising that neither of these tracks are on Crown land. They're owned by private operators. And the reality, whenever you're dealing with private operators, is that, um, and I, I'm pretty blunt about this, but sometimes they're prepared to take the cash but not invest the cash. And that's the reality of a sport that often relies upon private operators to be part of a matrix of the operation of the sport. Now, if this was a crown land, a crown operated or operated by a club, a not-for-profit club, I could promise you that a lot of the money would go back into the track to ensure its longevity and sustainability and safety. Now, when you have a private operator, and in the case of Sandown, it's a horse track before being a racetrack in some regards, inevitably um, there will be other factors that come into their strategic planning that may not necessarily put the sport, motorsport, at the head of their thinking. So my answer to your question is that um, historically when we've seen government-owned track, tracks or land-owned, uh, or, or sorry, uh, tracks that are essentially controlled by not-for-profit bodies, they've been well supported by government, generally reinvested back into the track. Look at Hidden Valley and look at, uh, and certainly look at uh, the ARDC and Sydney Motorsport Park. Um, they'll be around for another 30 years. You could not say with any great confidence that either QR or Sandown will be around for 30 years. And in the case of Sandown, we keep hearing very specific comment about it being parceled off and sold to developers for land and housing, land and houses. Um, QR is a different proposition altogether. That's about a particular uh, lease, lease, leaseholder that uh, is not particularly attracted to supercars by all, by all indications and is not prepared to spend the money to make the track uh, amenable to supercars but happy to have other competitors in other categories racing on the track um, and that may lead to consequences that are unfortunate as was seen only two or three months ago. So I get livid to some degree when... I see um, operators making money out of a track but not prepared to spend the money to actually improve the track, whether it's for safety reasons, whether it's for aesthetic reasons, whether it's for, sustain whether it's for sustainability. So um, we're talking to Sandown. Um, we don't believe that it can continue um, in its current form without some modification. Um, the FIA sends out its preeminent track inspector every three years and he's currently in the country. He's just finished his inspections. We'll be receiving written reports on both QR and Sandown, like we will with all the other tracks. And when those reports are prepared, we will go to those particular track operators and tell them what they need to do. Whilst I'm CEO, if that report does not support the track in its current state, I cannot imagine us continuing to allow a track licence for either venue if they don't comply with the FIA's requests. Now, obviously, so, so so the sad reality is that if they don't, if the reports come through and they need work and they don't want to do the work, then I can't issue them with a track license. So potentially, the last Sandown 500 has been run. 
potentially it does. Uh, it may be track license actually expires two weeks after the 2018 uh, Sandown 500. All right. So um, now it, CAMS does have some discretion in allowing a two-week extension for the sake of practicality, but I must say that I wouldn't be disposed to doing that unless Sandown was prepared to put some skin in the game for the following years, because I don't see that I should cut them any favours if it's going to be the last year. To be brutally honest, I'd want to seize that opportunity and say, I'll tell you what, um, we are happy to consider, based on safety considerations, the track licence to be extended for a further two weeks, provided the FIA approves. But I'm not sure that I'd be predisposed to doing that if Sandown indicate that they have no intention of putting in some effort to improving the track beyond 2.18. Got to be some give and take. And I'm not prepared to give or not prepared to take one way or another unless they're prepared to give. So, you know, I can't preempt what the next six months is going to hold between CAMS and, and Sandown because I haven't seen the report yet. When it hits my desk, I'll be talking to Sandown and getting a real fix on their intention and whether or not they're prepared to invest for money. And if they were, then certainly I'd look at 218 as being a transitional year while, while they conjure up some funds to then be able to do the necessary track work, particularly around Turn 6. Now, the the uh, now the, it used to be the Melbourne Jockey Club or the Melbourne Racing right. Club and the Australian it's Jockey Melbourne Club. Racing Club. Yeah. Yep. So at one stage there, the two clubs had tr- separate tracks, and that's why there was two tracks in Melbourne. I believe over the years that the clubs have merged, and they there's talking about the reason they can get rid of Sandown is they're now running all their meetings or the preliminary meetings out of I think it's Caulfield, but Caulfield. I'm, yeah, yep. I'm certainly yep, not Caulfield. Yeah. Uh, is CAMS able to lobby to say, well, actually, you've got Caulfield there, but this facility is the facility that has got the most uh, community engagement? And is CAMS able to lobby with the Victorian government to say, no, you've got to tell them if they want to sell one of the two to raise income, they have to sell Caulfield because Sandown has got so many other uses? Uh, look, we can and we will. And there's a fact that no government in Victoria wants to be in power if Sandown shuts because the legacy of being the government that allowed what is essentially a historic track arguably should be heritage listed, arguably, being shut down would be embarrassing for a government um, because it's one of the last true city-based permanent circuits. And we would appeal to both the MRC, the Melbourne Racing Club, and the Victorian government to see what they could do to extend the longevity of the track beyond 218. Um, the fact is that whilst you're right about them rationalising and bringing the racing into one venue, which would be Caulfield, they have major um, planned uh, uh, work around Caulfield in about four years' time, and they would need to shut down the track for a period of time, which would mean that they would probably have to shift some events to Sandown. So we hear talk that they will still retain Sandown as a secondary track in the short-term future. Of course, that could still mean that they can retain the track but get rid of the motorsport tarmac because they could actually continue running horses on the turf and basically um, ignore the tarmac. But that said, it also is a money spinner. It still does create money for them whilst it's open by having motorsport events there. And you know what? They probably get their biggest crowd when Sandown does happen. 
Sandown 500. So there's these very different touch points that are commercially related, politically related, historically related, sporting related, that we have to try and manage in one way or another to get an outcome. But I can promise you, whilst I'm CEO, that we're certainly going to lobby the government. We're certainly going to go and talk to the MRC. And, you know, to give you an example, if you're going to sell this plot of land in 10 years' time for $500 million or $400 million or $200 million, and they haven't got the money now to do the upgrades, why couldn't they go to the Victorian government and get some money off the government on the premise that when the track is sold, whatever that may be, the government gets its money back? So there's ways of solving short-term cash flow issues, but we're willing, ready, prepared to broker, negotiate, mediate to make sure that track survives. However, I would be lying and I wouldn't be a realist if I didn't say that a suburban track surrounded by housing is not going to be preserved in the longer term, but we can certainly work very hard to preserve that track whilst we're looking at other options, including Ballarat, Mildura, and you know at least one other one in the east that is being considered in, in the Cadinia Shire. So I sort of accept as a CEO, and I'm sorry I'm going on a bit, I'm sort of accept as a CEO that Sandown will close one day to motorsport. What I'm trying to do is create a third track. When I say third track, there's Phillip Island, Winton, there's obviously the Grand Prix circuit, which is street circuit, but a third permanent track of national standard competition level um, to replace Sandown when that happens. 218's too early. Well, you mentioned Ballarat before, and uh, you've obviously, through your football years, had an association with Ballarat, and uh, I guess you saw the realisation of some of that work this year when the, the Western Bulldogs went up there. What yep. is the status for uh, CAMS and motorsport? Well, um, at Ballarat, it's gone a bit cold. It's, I'll be, I'll be br- brutally blunt, but there's been some uh, changes to the uh, council, uh, the mayor in particular, and the, the sort of vibe we're getting is that they're not as warm to the prospect of building a motorsport park as the previous council was. Um, so my honest assessment at the moment is it's going to be cool. But if you look at the current stadium that's been built by the Andrews government in 2017, which was completed uh, obviously during the year, that plant, that seed was first planted by me in North Melbourne back in '09, And the decision to build it was made in late 15, and it's now been built. Um, so my view would be that we're going to continue pushing for a compelling case for the development of that track. And if you've got a government staring down the gun barrel at losing Sandown, it sort of accelerates their interest in helping a council to then be able to come to a point where it can then start to uh, bring on a track at Ballarat. Um, so again, uh, I'm going to continue pushing. I'm discouraged a little bit by the uh, lack of vigour that I'm finding from the council. Um, I'm being told that they're still interested, but it's not a priority. And for me, that's really telling me that it's not really, they're not really interested. But I believe that um, the state government and even federal government may play a role in the next six to nine months as elections start rolling in for opportunities to get some seed funding to actually advance the feasibility and the development of that venue. But right now, it's... It's uh, it's off the boil. Mm. Now you mentioned Mildura and uh, and Ballarat. Mildura has got a council that at one stage there about six to eight months ago was gun ho to try and get a track up, and at one stage they were trying to have an arms race to make sure they got their track in before Ballarat got yeah. off the ground. That well, sounds like that's dropped off. Still re- 
No, 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 no. They're still red hot. They're absolutely red hot. There's a launch at Parliament House on the 21st of November, um, the launch of the motorsport uh, business case. They're looking for both government and private investor support. Um, that is one council that if I could have a couple of those going around the, going around the state, I'd be wrapped. And they are certainly still gung-ho, and uh, I'm actually talking at that launch at Parliament House where we'll have some interested parliamentarians putting their beaks in. As you know, regional Victoria, any regional area is always likely to attract some funding, and this is a compelling business case that is very much, in my view, has gone past Ballarat. They've got the land, they've got the will, they've got the council, um, and I believe they sit in a very unique regional area that could attract funds, particularly when funding for uh, the car industry is now dropping off. There's opportunities to redirect some of that money into worthy projects that could actually bring more economic development to a region. So as opposed to Ballarat, which has gone one direction, I think Vildura is still going in a positive direction and forward. And uh, we're looking to seeing how that launch goes in uh, Parliament House uh, on the 21st of November. And obviously with ambassadors like uh, the Kellys and Cam Waters, who won Sandown, uh, they've got uh, the right people in their ears and they're close to home they've got uh, drivers who they can hang their hat on. Well, Jura's actually got a pretty proud history uh, in motorsport from both two wheels and four wheels and drag and uh, and circuit racing and uh, even off-road. There's a very strong off-road community in Mildura. So I think when you're talking four wheels and two wheels, is going to tick a few boxes. Uh, they don't have ambitions for supercars. It's a longer-term master plan but would include supercars. But the short-term objective is to get a body track up to manage national uh, sort of below uh, supercars, which would be the Shannons and state uh, events and, uh, you know, a myriad of other activities. So I'm absolutely... I'm actually on the video, which is on the YouTube, introducing the the business case. So, again, CAMS is at the forefront of trying to help them and we've worked pretty hard with the track development, the track design. We've worked with their advisors and business council or business uh, case uh, preparers. And so from our point of view... Um, I'd be really keen to see how many politicians we can buttonhole on the 21st of November to really get them excited about this. Mm. Well, you were talking about private ownership of racetracks and one that is well underway that has got ambitions for supercars and beyond is out there at Tail and Bend. How is that going to change the South Australian motorsport uh, ethos? Well, well, I think that um, we know that the South Australian state is uh, one of the highest per capita in engagement for motorsport in terms of both their competitor licence holders and officials. Um, you look at Clipsal, which is the biggest event on the calendar bar Bathurst in terms of numbers. Um, it made sense to have another event in that state on a permanent circuit. The upside will be that Sam Shaheen and Peregrine are going to bring possibly one or two international events to South Australia. And more importantly, for the other 48 weeks of a year, there are going to be opportunities for club level, state level and some national events to take place. So we've been involved in Tail and Bend since it was even before it was on the drawing board. CAMS assisted the South Australian government in identifying Tail and Bend. We then worked with Sam uh, once he actually secured the land to get his FIA certification, which is being done as we speak. Um, I think you build any track anywhere in this country and you will fill it. And Tail and Bend is going to be a prime quality track, uh, long distance, being able to take all sorts of endurance and short sprints. 
and you know anything. It's the first track that has been built in this country for over 20 years, and I think it's exciting. It's going to be great for South Australia. It's going to become one of our pin-up track tracks for arguing with governments about building uh, infrastructure of this sort around the country, and we are only ecstatic at the prospect of uh, Sam completing that track early next year, and for the Shannon's Nationals to be the first major event to take place on that be- on that uh, venue in April next year. Now, uh, Eugene, you mentioned that the track inspector's in the country now. Is he able to inspect a track that's not built yet? How do you do the uh, yeah, well, licensing then? Well, yeah, yeah, well, he's going to have to come back, but he's, he's, he's carried out a preliminary investigation because they've started grading the track, as you may be aware. They haven't laid the asphalt, but the design of plans have already been run through the FIA. So John Symes was able to get a look-see and uh, look at what's being built thus far, and trust me, there is some stuff that's going on, but he will need to return to the track um, early next year when it's done and dusted for a final inspection to give it its absolute sign-off. So, again, we're a part of all that process, and that's probably going to happen in either January, February or March, um, but it won't get the ribbon-cutting until that final inspection is done. Um, but they're going, they're going like the clappers to get it done, and uh, John Symes already had a look, and he's very encouraged by what he's seen, and he's looking forward to returning early next year to give it the final tick. Mm. Now, Eugene, last time we spoke on the show, we were talking about uh, Super 5000 and also Formula Thunder 5000 and and uh, that potential clash of categories. It seems like uh, some sanity is prevailing in in that little um, in that little situation. But uh, more recently, we've uh, heard from James Warburton about the. Uh, hope of supercars to take over the management rights of Australian GT. And he was fairly forthright on Friday at the Gold Coast to say Cams has killed the deal. I thought it's only fair to ask you what's happening there. Well, I think people need to put in in context what the deal was about. And it would be unfair for me to talk about what supercars and GTs had discussed and publicly put that on the record. I think that would be unfair and commercially incompetent. I think people need to understand two critical things. One is that CAMS actually owns the category as such, owns the rules and the regulations. It's an FIA homologated uh, category, including the GTs, uh, the endurance, the sprints, the threes and the fours. And we essentially lease those rights out to Tony Quinn and his management group for defined periods of time. Right now, he's got those rights uh, for which he pays CAMS a sum of money uh, until the end of 220. And yet, there's no doubt that there is some work to be done in dealing with the competitors and dealing with other related issues uh, to bring it to a standard that they're happy with. But the, the issue that we had was that supercars were essentially looking to take over that three years, but they wouldn't do it unless CAMS extended it for another three years. So they were looking for a six-year category management agreement when the rule generally has been that we do them for three years, we review them at the end of three years and either open it back up to the market or extend it. We were being asked to take a leap of faith in supporting supercars when it would be fair to say that um, some people could argue that they haven't quite settled down the Gen 2 issue. And what we were saying is, well, give us a plan make us understand what the commercial elements of this deal are 
and what the long-term plans are. But the reality was all we were hearing about was we're going to take it over, we're going to take it over now, and we want, we want, we want it for six years. And so CAMS and the board, or the board in particular, reviewed all that and keeping an eye on protecting what is essentially an asset of CAMS that generates income for CAMS that goes back into the sport before deciding whether to allow that to be extended for a further three years for an operator that is basically managing the major category in the country already um, needed some consideration. And we asked for some information, we asked for details, and we got some of that information, we got some of it late in the piece, and ultimately CAMS decided in the interests of motorsport as a whole that we would not extend it for a further three-year period. We would prefer that supercars, if they were going to take it over, would take it over only for three years. They made it very clear that they could not and would not do it for three years, and so the deal fell over. But I might add that we weren't... We can say that there was no deal. We weren't shown a signed contract subject to CAM's approval. There were still ongoing discussions between Tony and James um, as late as middle of last week. So... There's a few things that um, uh, sort of needed to play out. But the critical thing for us, and we've expressed this in our own statement, was that they wanted an extension of this from 2.20 to 2.23. And we were asked to extend it. And to be honest, the terms under which that extension were going to happen were actually going to see the financial return to CAMS go backwards. In other words, we were technically going to be getting less or having less rights under those additional years than we have at the moment and therefore we made it very clear that we couldn't agree to that despite the fact that they actually hadn't had a deal concluded nothing has been signed off because um, you can actually sign off a deal subject to an approval um, we were as far as we were concerned that, that discuss, those discussions were still ongoing between James and Tony and that also added another element to the whole discussion so if anyone's painting us as the the blockers, they need to remember two things. We're the landlord. We essentially owned, we owned this property, and so therefore we're entitled to ensure that it's protected. And secondly, we were being asked to extend, if you want to call it the lease, three years beyond the current term, and we were going to be asked to receive less as a result, essentially receive less as a result. In other words, strip things out of the agreement that would suit supercars, but not necessarily suit cans. So... I've got a responsibility to my board. The board has a responsibility to its members, and we need to make sure that um, we don't look back in three years' time and kick ourselves for entering into a deal that was prejudicial to CAMS commercial and membership benefits. Well, Eugene, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you again. Of course, the Shannons Nationals concludes at Wakefield Park in a few weeks' time now, so uh, we wish you all, all the best for the uh, conclusion of another busy year. Thanks very much, Craig, and thanks for your support throughout the year. I might close on saying that motorsport is at record levels in terms of grassroots and uh, general participation. More clubs, more events more competitor licences ever issued in our history, more junior licence holders ever than ever before, and more women participating. So if people want to paint a gloom and doom picture, uh, the challenges are more about finding more venues, more tracks, and more availability 
for those people to go and enjoy the sport. And so, uh, you know, on a closing note, thanks for your support, but motorsport couldn't be in better shape. And thanks again for your uh, your interest. And after the break, we'll be back with Craig Ravel talking with Mitch Robinson about PRA and his introduction to supercars and Sandown. An interesting insight. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, Through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Begley in the final, which uh, we were able to do after, um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Raptor family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Cars, Tony Whitlock in New Zealand, while Craig Lavelle is talking with Mitch Robinson, who joined PRA pre-Sandown to give us his idea on how the series and his new job at Super, in Supercars works. Mitch, how, how did you in the United States decide that there was a job in Australia that you just might like? I guess it's just kind of a background of being a race fan. Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to have grown up around uh, IndyCar and American Open Wheel racing throughout my entire life. Uh, basically as long as I can remember. So, uh, you know, I've had racing in my blood for 20-plus years and, you know, just started following supercars uh, about, you know, five or six years ago, a little bit casually, and been a little bit more focused over the last three or four years, just started catching on to it and really enjoying it. And, you know, graduated from uni back in May, uh, back in Indiana at Ball State, and, you know, started around that time with – you know, came across the supercars.com job page actually. And, uh, in early July, this position, this position, excuse me, came available. Uh, I seemed to fit the description. So I thought, why not I'll throw a resume at it, see what happens. And wasn't even expecting to get a call back, let alone to be flying here and, uh, being able to work with one of the top teams in this series. So it's, uh, a little bit shocking, but, uh, definitely been an amazing time. And I'm very, very fortunate to have the opportunity. It's, uh, quite a different type of racing that we, you would have grown up with in and around Indiana, where, of course, everyone thinks of the 500, but Yuzak uh, is headquartered there, which looks after wingless sprints, sprint cars. They haven't really been involved in stock car racing, but there still is a healthy stock car scene, particularly a late model scene at uh, local tracks. What was Were you involved in any of those sort of uh, racing endeavours before? Not directly, no. Uh, you know, obviously being involved in open wheel racing specifically, you know, on pavement, most of my stuff was IndyCar and then, you know, the Maserati Indy over there and the developmental series heading out towards IndyCar. But, you know, the Indianapolis 500 has so much history related to that type of racing that the fan base overall is very much involved. So I know a little bit about it, you know, went to race every now and again going up. Uh, nothing super, you know, close contact or, you know, you know, firsthand necessarily experiences uh, being in and around that. But, you know, they're race car drivers at the end of the day, so you absolutely respect everything they do and all the people involved in that. It's, uh, you know, it, they're part of the racing community there you know, no matter what they drive. So it's definitely something that I appreciate and respect. Now you've 
first race meeting is was Sandown, and you've seen the whole Pertec Cup. How have you uh, got your head around coming in for the three biggest events, or well, three of the four biggest events of the year? It's been uh, the phrase we've used has been about to them a fire. I actually landed Tuesday morning at Sandown and didn't know really anybody in the country. So uh, Pete Javaskis, our marketing director, and uh, my immediate higher up picked me up at the airport and we actually came straight into the office. So it was uh, straight into things. And then, of course, with how Sandown turned out with Cam and Richie winning the thing from pole uh, was hectic. I think might be an understatement for that. But uh, the races that ever since I've been following supercars, um, it's been ones that I've been wanting to be a part of. Uh, actually, fortunately, I was able to come to Service Paradise uh, back in 2003 when IndyCar, well, it was Cart then that was racing there. Uh, and that's sort of what started things and fell in love with Australia and uh, was trying to get back. So having this opportunity was great. Um, obviously, winning Sandown was incredible. Bathurst is, you know, also incredible. You can't put any real description into just how unbelievable that place is. And to get back to Gold Coast over the weekend, and of course, pick up the results that we did as a team uh, really was uh, a great way to return to a place that holds some pretty great memories for me. Now, Gold Coast, Surface Paradise, how different was it as a national race over the international race you saw? It's tough for me to compare it, honestly, because uh, when I came here back in 03, I was just nine years old. And uh, from what I understand since getting over here, the uh, I guess the atmosphere has been tamed down quite a bit since those days, uh, to put it uh, cleanly or plainly. Uh, so, you know, obviously the track's shorter and it's you know, a little bit smaller of a, a lineup, I guess you could say, in terms of the major series. Uh, but there's plenty of action. I mean, the circuit itself is very challenging for the drivers. Uh, like any street circuit, there's lots of changes year on year just in terms of the circuit itself. So it's tough to find a setup, especially with the brief amount of time they have to get on track and practice for the weekend. So definitely one that you know, everybody looks to. Of course, it's you know, one of the marquee events of the season as well. So you know, it still has its flashy luster about it. And there's, oh, I can't think of too many places in the world where you have a race almost literally on the beach. Fortunately, we've got another one coming up at Newcastle here next month. Uh, but it's it's a real special event. Uh, I'm really honored to be able to be a part of that. You mentioned you saw the job ad in July. How do you go getting visas and getting everything organized in such a relatively short period of time? Well, the team helped out a little bit with that and just helped point me in the right direction on things like that. Uh, you know, Obviously, there's something that nobody in my family had ever come across before and trying to set that sort of thing up. So it was uh, almost overwhelming at times, but it really was fairly straightforward. It wasn't too difficult to process um, and just sort of had to fill out some paperwork, get you know the right things figured out and um, make sure I was set up correctly to be approved as quickly as possible. And uh, fortunately we were able to do that. And there was a short period of time where we were kind of on pins and needles waiting to see if it would come through because you never know when government paperwork uh, how long they can take sometimes so there's a short period of time where we had a little bit concern on it but as soon as that concern was kind of raised with the team uh, actually just a couple hours later after I got off the phone with them everything came through and all was good so it's been really smooth getting over here and getting settled in everybody that I've been able to interact with here has been really tremendous to work with and be around so it's uh, something I guess the stars sort of aligned and you know, I 
not sure I could ask for anything better than what I've gotten here this first uh, six weeks. Has it been what you've expected? To a T, honestly. Um, you know, transition, getting over here and getting uh, into the team, you know, and getting in with the team, I guess, was easier than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. Uh, you know, once you figured out the flow of operations with everybody, who to go to, for what question, uh, with, both in the team and with members of the series or with other teams, uh, with sponsors, et cetera. Once you figure that out, it's working for a race team, which I've had the fortune to do uh, in several different areas uh, over the past handful of years. So once you figure that out, it's relatively smooth sailing. And when you have a team that's as well-structured and well-run as Pro Drive Racing Australia, um, it's pretty straightforward of how to figure things out. And then everybody knows their role. Everybody knows their place and what they can contribute to, uh, how to best contribute to uh, the whole effort of the whole team. So getting in with these guys has been really a breeze for the most part and uh, it helps to get some pretty good results and bring home some hardware uh, at the end of the weekend. So it's really been a joy. Uh, Melbourne's been pretty good to me as well. The weather's starting to get a little bit nicer here too. So really looking forward to see what the future has in store. Well, the worst Melbourne winter is still going to be better than uh the winter months in Indiana, I can assure you, weather-wise. It's just that uh, summer will uh, not necessarily always be the same across even an hour. Yeah, that's what I've found, too. And the funny thing is uh, people always say in Indiana, you know, you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, it'll change, except it actually does that in Melbourne. So it's uh, something that I'm vaguely familiar with, but it, the change of pace in terms of the weather has been a little bit of an eye opener, but uh, you know, definitely been enjoying it. And uh, you know, like I said, it's been a real transition into getting here, and uh, it's becoming home really, really quickly, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, of course, uh, we've spoken before. You went to Ball State, which is up in Anderson, Indiana, which is a little bit north, famous for, uh, of course, the. Uh, the Sprint Car Indy, which is held on the week of Indianapolis, but it's also famous for Ball State University, which is where you went to college, and also famous for the fact that David Letterman went to college at Ball State. Yeah, it, it's cool because uh, Dave is an owner of an IndyCar team back in Indiana, so met on the grid a couple of times at races, and uh, actually my last race with IndyCar back in August uh, at St. Louis, uh, Dave was there, got to chat with him in pit lane before the race started and mentioned to him that I was coming over here. And, uh, he was really interested by that. So I'm sure whenever I get back there, I'm hoping to go back to the 500 in May. And if I'm able to meet up with him there, I'm sure we'll have a good quick chat about it. And, uh, you know, he's a great contributor to the university. Obviously gives it a lot of, uh, reputation in terms of obviously being the biggest name celebrity, highest profile person to come out of the school. Um, still, wears his cardinal red and uh, white. So it's uh, cool to have someone like that and have that in common with him. And perhaps that conversation will turn to, well, you've got this IndyCar team and another fella down there's got an IndyCar team and another fella over there's got an IndyCar team and they've got shares in supercars as well. Yeah, it's pretty entertaining. Uh, actually, the first team that I worked for was Andretti Autosport. I interned with them when I was 18, uh, when I was still in high school. And so... It was interesting coming over about this when they made the announcement. Went over to the HSV garage for a little bit and chatted with Michael. And uh, you know, they're very excited to be here. Obviously, what Roger Penske's done with uh, DJR Team Penske is about what you'd expect Roger Penske to do with any kind of racing organization. But 
great to see that level of team uh, get back to a proper high level of, uh, of competition. And I'm sure that uh, Michael Andretti and Zach Brown will do some very similar things to HSV. Uh, it's a team that obviously has run very well in the past, and they'll probably run an up front here before too long with us again. As an American, what do you think when you see uh, Americans coming in and, and buying into supercars? I think it shows what you know, me and a handful, a dozen other people that are able to watch uh, supercars regularly, really watch the Superview before I came over here online, uh, is what we would tell any other racing fans that we see. That it's just a very high intensity, it's proper racing, it's you know, everything you would want in a motorsport series. Uh, both on and off the track. Uh, one thing I've been extremely impressed by is just the way that the teams in the series handle themselves in terms of how they handle corporate business uh, with sponsorships. Um, everything is prepared extremely, extremely well over here. And that's something I think that you, know, you see the guys like Roger Penske and Michael Andretti. I think they appreciate that because that's the same sort of attention that they bring to their IndyCar programs or really all of their racing programs for that matter. So, I think it shows that the series is on par with any major racing category in the world, uh, and it's nice to see that it's getting that attention that it deserves. Mm. You mentioned watching it on Superview. It, it's safe to say you won't watch it very often on TV these days, but the television coverage of supercars is very different to the way it's your racing in the United States is broadcast. Yeah, it's... Uh, First time I actually watched Supercars, I think was probably like 2008, 2009 with, uh, I believe it was a Hamilton Street Circuit uh, way back. And that's when Supercars races were shown on Speed Channel, but they are usually shown a couple months tape delayed. Uh, so that's that was really my first exposure to the series and sort of started getting the ball rolling to uh, you know, where I'm at today. Uh, but yeah, the racing itself is a fair bit different in terms of the format. It's, there's only... You know, only a couple races a year where there's just one race on the weekend, as opposed to with my past in Indico, we raced it in Detroit and we had two races on one weekend. That was really it in that double other format. So it's a little bit different based off of that, but you know, I think that's uh, something that's a positive for Supercross because you get more bang for your buck as a fan. Uh, there's more racing action throughout the season for the series, uh, more chances for drivers to make an impression, teams to make an impression. And Obviously, the product shows every single time, no matter where you're at or how many times you race. So it's uh, definitely not something to be taken lightly or taken away from supercars. I think it's something that's really impressive and uh, pretty cool to be a part of. Mm. Now, supercars were thrilled that they were able to condense their calendar to, t- to 10 months. IndyCar, a couple of years ago, made a fairly radical move and condensed it down to really just the summer, to or spring and summer, six-month sort of period. How did that change IndyCars? It's interesting because a lot of the teams, especially those that have lower budgets or lower funding, uh, they would end up having to lay off a lot of the mechanics and employees in general over the winter time just because if you race for six months uh, and then you have six months off, then there's a good four or five month period where you really don't need a lot of those people. It doesn't make financial sense to keep them employed, which is kind of unfortunate, but it's just the name of the game, you know, how you it's a business uh, at the end of the day, so you have to keep that in mind uh, regardless of what kind of race team you're running. So there's that aspect, and then as well, even within that five, six, seven-month season that Indy has been having over the past handful of years, 
it's kind of a balancing act. You want to have consistent races uh, in terms of frequency so that the attention stays on you as a series and stays on your teams and drivers. But when you have races back to back to back to back on those weeks and you have testing in between those, it really becomes a grind for the guys that work in the garage uh, in the shop. So uh, that's something that was brought to the attention of the series. And they've tried to lengthen things out and spread that races out a bit more. It's significantly better now than it was, say, in 2014-15. It's still a pretty big grind for a lot of those guys. Uh, but it's definitely been improved, and they've worked more on trying to help with the testing dates as well. So on those race or when on those weekends where they are not racing, there isn't as much testing, so that there's chances for those guys to go home, see family, uh, and spend a weekend you know watching TV and kicking feet up on the couch. So uh, it, it's still like any racing series is. It's always a big sacrifice that people in the sport have to make to be able to travel and do it, but you know, we're also the people that love doing it. So that's why we're here. So it's, again, trying to find that balancing act of, you know, being frequent but not too frequent. It's a tough one to kind of tightrope that one. Mm. And I guess uh, with our compact, more compacted uh, calendar, you're not going to have to worry too much about how am I going to keep this team relevant if there's a four-week break within, in between races. Yeah, it's uh, – an interesting thing to follow because that's something we've talked about as well, uh, both before and since I've gotten here, uh, is that there's a spread. But I've been finding here since I've gotten to Australia that two weeks between races sometimes isn't, is not enough time because there's a lot of work to be done, lots of preparation, uh, both in the shop downstairs and upstairs in our corporate offices in terms of preparing things and getting everything ready. Um, it's a short week because we're going to New Zealand the next week. Uh, so the, the guys really don't have a whole lot of time to pack up the cars and get everything prepared and make any necessary changes and fixes of the cars. So there's still plenty of work to be done and, uh, you know, it fills up your time schedule. So it's still pretty action packed for us, even when we're not on track. Mm. Well, Mitch, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you. And, uh, I guess we'll be seeing a lot more of your work throughout the next few years from the uh, PRA or will it be the Tickford garages? You'll have to wait and see on that one. But, yeah, I'm very, very happy to uh, be a part of it and uh, we're excited to see what the future has in store. Thanks very much. Mitch Robinson. And after the break, our final thought on Inside Supercars this week. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every every year I see Jackie's crew at the Grand Prix and I just remind myself of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Brabham certainly left his mark, not only on Australian motorsport, but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. And welcome back for our final thoughts on this week's Inside Supercars. Craig Ravel and Tony Whitlock. Craig, I just think the series is so poised to be a wonderful end of this year. Um, we've got five drivers. Okay, it's 189 points. But as we all know, a DNF, you know, Wincup and Scotty McLaughlin, both of them having engine problems at Bathurst, it takes very little to end. With 150 points on every race from here on in, 600 in total, things can change on their head. But the great thing is it is driver skill engineering skill and strategies that will see our championship won by the rightful driver and team and i'm looking forward so much 
firsthand to being there at Pukekohe and then being at the final in Newcastle in November. It should be a wonderful end to this year's series. Mm. Craig? This week I'd like to say that if you're in Melbourne or can get to Melbourne, then the Speedway Grand Prix is on at Etihad Stadium. And if you've never seen Speedway or if you've never seen uh, the Speedway Grand Prix and you can't make it there, Fox Sports will have all the action. It is an amazing sport and it is actually what... I think supercars want to achieve with a night race. Unfortunately, though, their format doesn't allow them to put it all into a football field so that you can have a coliseum effect. And perhaps if any new circuit gets built like that, then, wow, what a spectacle supercar racing could be. But, um, yeah, certainly the Speedway Grand Prix, in my opinion, is currently the best motor racing package television or otherwise that there is going and uh, we're lucky enough to have a round in fact we're lucky enough to have the final round in australia and of course jason doyle an australian is in the front of that championship fight off the top of my head with a 14 point lead so it will be uh, a big night for him to be able to wrap up that world championship in australia his home country. So all the best to Jason Doyle and make sure you check out Speedway Grand Prix because that is such an amazing package. And like I said, I think there is similarities that could be uh, brought into supercars, particularly at night. Well, for those who can't make it, like myself, um, then you'll just have to try and find some highlights somewhere, which I hope I can. Uh, For the rest of us, we'll just have to make do with watching what happens in supercars over the next two events. So thank you very much for all listening to our show this week and good night from me. Enjoy the Hampton Downs 500 this weekend, Tony, and it's good night from me. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. 